Welcome, everyone, to the Predictably Treacherous Podcast, coming at you in the midst of the corona apocalypse. Today, we're going to be looking at the Mill Creek Sci-Fi Collection. This is part three of a five-part series. So I split this review up into five parts, ten movies per part. I'm doing them in chronological order. So today, we're going through movies 21 through 30 in the collection. So I've put links in the show notes for all the stuff we're going to be discussing in the episode. Um, specifically, though, the Mill Creek Sci-Fi Collection. And I'm using the same rating system I've been using for the previous episodes, which is um, the What's the Verdict? It's either skip it, watch it once, or rewatchable. Let's get to it. First movie up, The Amazing Transparent Man. From 1960. Runtime, 58 minutes. Uh, budget, no idea. Distributed by MCP Film Distribution Company. Here's what Wikipedia had to say. The Amazing Transparent Man is a 1960 science fiction film starring Marguerite Chapman. It is an American B-movie which follows the story of an insane ex-U.S. Army major who uses an escaped criminal to steal materials to improve the invisibility machine his scientist prisoner made. It was one of two sci-fi films shot back-to-back -back in Dallas, Texas by director Edgar G. Ulmer, the other being Beyond the Time Barrier, also released in that same year. the opening credits like those a lot like the the opening music very nice nice title cards um, there's a great opening sequence uh, with uh, a convict escaping from prison so it's the the main guy the wealthy guy who's trying to create an army or whatever who I guess uh, arranged for the convict to escape I like the premise uh, a lot um, of an invisibility ray and uh, breaking the safe cracker out of prison, blackmailing him into carrying out your schemes. I got a little lost um, where I thought the ultimate purpose of all this was to rob banks, but the scientist at the end in some final scene, he suddenly out of the blue just reveals that it was to create an invisible army. So... I, I, that was a little lost on me. Um, Wikipedia backs that up, but they're probably just getting it from the movie. 
So, um, but yeah, it was a good movie. It was fun. Nice and short, good length for a, a bad B movie. Um, the director, Edgar G. Ulmer, is kind of interesting. He seems to be quite the artur. Um, worked in a lot of low budget and B movies. And a lot of his um, works are in the public domain. So you can acquire a lot of them from um, archive.org, among other sources. So I put some link in the show notes. I plan on watching a bunch of the ones that I downloaded because um, he does have quite a quite a style. It's kind of interesting. So I'd like to see a bunch of his other films and see if it keeps up. So what's the verdict on this one? Uh, I would say it's definitely worth watching, but watch it once. Um, I could even watch it again, but watch it once. That's good enough. Next one up. First Spaceship on Venus. So this one was released February 26, 1960 in East Germany, it's the GDR, and October 31st, 1962 in the USA. The runtime is 79 minutes, and it's dubbed into English. Distributed by Crown International Pictures in the U.S. and by Progress Film in East Germany. Here's what Wikipedia had to say. Literal English translation to the name of it, Der, der Schweigengardstern. It means uh, the silent star. In a 1960 East German slash Polish color science fiction film based on the 1951 science fiction novel, The Astronauts by Stanislaw Lem, it was directed by Kurt Metzig and stars Gunter Simon, Julius Ongoe, and Yoko Tani. The film was first released by Progress Film in East Germany, running 93 minutes. Variously dubbed and cut versions were also released in English under other titles. First Spaceship on Venus, Planet of the Dead, and Spaceship Venus Does Not Reply. What a name. Okay. So after, here's a plot summary. After finding an ancient long-buried flight recorder that originally came from a spaceship... Apparently, from Venus, a human spaceship is dispatched to Venus. The crew discovers a long-dead Venusian civilization that had constructed a device intended to destroy all life on Earth prior to invasion. Before they could execute their plan, they perished in a global nuclear war. So, I have a lot to say about this one. Um, So, as I mentioned earlier, this one was produced in the GDR, which is very cool um the gdr existed from 1949 to 1990 and was the eastern part of germany administered and occupied by soviet forces 
So it's commonly described as a communist state by the West, but it's self-described as a socialist workers and peasant state. So you can go read about the GDR. It's fascinating. And everything you know about it currently has likely been arrived at through the lens of Western propaganda. So go check it out. Just go to Wikipedia, whatever. You'll just get some good information there. Um, so this film, it looks really cool. Um, it looks really good on paper. Uh, the plot summary, like the plot idea is, is, is very cool. But it actually isn't that compelling to watch. So it's hard to get into any of the characters. The characters didn't seem real. And uh, I didn't feel any sympathy for them. Like I couldn't get into any of the characters really. It's dubbed into English, which I don't usually mind. Um, but it does make it more difficult to connect with any of the characters. It sounds like this. That is the 10th match that I've lost. I should give up, I guess. I would suggest that you make an improvement in Omega. Hmm? Oh, really? If he only had a heart, he would let Orloff win once in a while. Don't you think you could be able to do that? Hmm? Just a little bit of heart, Jerome. Hmm? Yeah, so it sounds strange. Um, it doesn't sound that real. But there was a lot to like about this film. There was an attempt to include a more international or internationally represented crew, including a Japanese doctor played by Yoko Tani, who is very attractive, um, an Indian mathematician, a Chinese biologist slash linguist, a French engineer, a communications guy from presumably an African country because he's black. Um, there was an implied previous relationship between the female Japanese doctor and an American crewman. Although ultimately, I will say the guys in charge who are making the decisions, the management, were all white European males. So um, that gets kind of gutted a little bit. Uh, the plot. As I mentioned before, like on paper, this this one's cool. It has a pretty good plot. You can check out the full detailed plot on Wikipedia, like a lot of detail. But basically, um, they find an extraterrestrial artifact. Uh, it's a flight recorder. And they tie it back to a real historical event. The, how do you say it? Tung, Tunguska event of 1908. So that's where a meteorite came in and it blew up over Siberia somewhere, like over the forest. And it like destroyed a bunch of forests and stuff. So what they do is they reinterpret that event as actually being a spacecraft crashing rather than a meteor explosion. And um, they discover that it's a flight recorder and it's from a ship from Venus somehow. So they launch an international mission to Venus to make contact with the Venetians. But along the way, they're able to decipher the flight recorder, and it reveals that the Venetians were planning an invasion of Earth. Um, so that's very cool. And then uh, beyond that, once they finally land on Venus, they realize that the civilization's been destroyed by nuclear war. So some good social commentary, too. Like it's, um, you know, saying, hey, be careful. Um, and it's based on a novel, uh, The Astronauts, as mentioned earlier, 
by Stanislaw Flem, and he actually wrote Solaris. So if you haven't seen Solaris, check that out. It's brilliant. Um, so what's the verdict on this one? Um, I definitely watch it. Watch it once. Like I say, it's it's a way better on paper, and it's not that compelling to watch, but it's worth it. So it's worth checking out. Okay, next one, the horrors. Sorry, horrors of Spider Island, nineteen sixty. So this one, um, watching this one was about how the theme song comes across with the scratchiness. It was um, it was kind of bad. Like I like the idea of this one as well, and there was a lot of good parts about this one. But it's super low budget, and it's not that um, it's not that complex. So horrors of Spider Island, nineteen sixty. Released April 16th, 1960. Running time, 82 minutes. I like that. Budget, no idea. Distribution, Peacemaker, sorry, Pacemaker Pictures, Inc. So here's from Wikipedia what they have to say about the um, summary. Horrors of Spider Island, which is German. Ein Toter hing im Netz. A corpse hung in the web. Is a 1960 West German horror film directed by Fritz Botger from his screenplay and produced by Gaston Hakim and Wolf C. Hartwig for Rapid Film Intercontinental Filmgeschäft. The film stars Alexander Darcy as a talent agent who invites several girls to a club in Singapore. Their plane ride ends abruptly when they crash land into the ocean Darcy and the women make their way to an island where they find a large spider web. A giant spider sinks uh, its teeth into Darcy, which turns him into a mutant. So it says the film was released in the United States in 1962 and has been released with various English titles, including It's Hot in Paradise, Hot in Paradise, Girls of Spider Island, and Spider's Web. It was, yeah, okay. So, what are my thoughts on this? Uh, okay, so despite what I've said, um, I liked it. I liked it a lot. The opening scene where the girls are auditioning for modeling, dancing jobs, was, uh, was a fun device that served to reveal something about Gary, the talent agent, who is slimy, but just the right type of character that you can feel confident that he's going to assemble an array of sexy girls for the business venture in Singapore. So then the girls are brought in to be evaluated one by one for the project. Um, and they are made to show their legs and dance. And most importantly, let the audience get a good long look at them and get invested in the film. So that was kind of nicely done. Um, that's uh, It's like a good first 10 minutes. So where the premise is established 
and the main characters are introduced. And and what you get is the audience, I guess, can sees the girls and is like, oh, I like that one, I like that one. And you kind of get invested in the film. Okay, so they take a plane, and their plane crashes somewhere over the Pacific Ocean, but they all survive, and they are able to paddle a raft to a nearby island. So on the island, they find a cabin with a giant spider web and a dead dude trapped in it. So they discover that he was a professor, and in his diary, he discovered a uranium deposit and felt that something bad was going to happen to him. So the spider is its actually really cute. It's like um, the size of a, I don't know, a little poodle or something. And um, it scurries around, has big eyes. It looks like a kid's stuffy. So for a sense of how low budget and poorly executed this film was, let's listen to this scene where a character is on the phone fielding calls from the press about the plane crash and whether he has any news about the missing passengers. Let's listen. No, Mr. Hastings, I can only repeat. There's absolutely no reason yet to fear the worst. Until now, we only know that the plane caught fire and that we've lost radio contact. Yeah, yeah, I'll let you know immediately, as soon as I hear something new. So if you listen really closely, you can hear the guy on the other end of the phone telling the character what to say, and then the character will repeat it back into the phone. <laughs> it's like... Sounds incredible. Okay. So back on the island. So Georgia, which is one of the girls, she's officially in charge of the girls. And she and Gary um, have affection for one another. So another girl who is formerly a stripper tries to seduce Gary and Georgia catches them kissing. Gary storms off for a walk and gets bitten by the spider and turned into a man spider and begins stalking the girls. So the girls argue and fight and run around in sundresses and bare feet and legs and shoulders and arms, and there's even a bathing scene. Uh, Eventually, some guys show up on the island to deliver supplies to the professor, but the professor's dead and has been replaced by a group of lonely, horny, beautiful girls, and so they throw a sexy party the night before they're going to be picked up by the boat to leave, uh, which was great. It was like a Benny Hill episode or something. So there's this final confrontation um, with the man spider, and uh, they end up chasing him with torches into a field of quicksand and he sinks into oblivion it's kind of a i guess they're just like oh, look we got to close this one off let's the girls are going to get picked up we've had a sexy party let's let's resolve this thing and i guess that's how they chose to do it so what's the verdict on this one uh watch it once i know i'm, I'm a bit wishy-washy on these i think i initially said no this one's crap and then i said like i loved it and it is sort of like that like i recognize that it's terrible but I really enjoyed it. It was good. And I think I can also appreciate for at the time, like if I'm some teenage boy in 19, late 50s, early 60s, and this movie comes out and I see those girls having the sexy party or um, running around that island and 
bare feet, bare arms, sundresses, fighting, and all sweaty and horny and cranky. I'm going to want to see this film. So I can appreciate that it's a good film from that angle, but it's just, it's really low budget, kind of shitty. Okay, so what's the next one? Assignment Outer Space, 1960. playback of a radiotaped report of an exclusive feature story for the Planetary Chronicle of New York. Ray Peterson reporting. Dateline, December 17th, year 2116. Spaceship Bravo Zulu 88. Destination Galaxy M12. Assignment Outer Space. Yeah, so you get the idea. That was the old intro there. So this one is uh, released August 1960 in Italy. Runtime 73 minutes. Distribution, Titanus. So here's what Wikipedia had to say. Um, by the way, the Wikipedia URL is wikipedia.org slash wiki slash space dash men. <laughs> what? A, all right. Um, in 2000, sorry, 2116, Interplanetary Chronicle of New York reporter Ray Peterson. Okay, we're going to skip all that. Basically, it's about a reporter who goes on an assignment to a space station. And um, the, r the guy who runs the space station thinks the reporter's going to get in the way. But the reporter proves to be invaluable and gives a major contribution to the survival of the space station. And I think they do something heroic, like they save humanity or some shit like that. Um, so what did I think of this one? Not too much. I will say, though, thank God for Wikipedia, because it fills in some of the plot details that I missed watching the film. So this film has a vision of the future with man having a permanent presence in space on a station with artificial gravity and cigar-shaped spaceships that can take off and land. And there's an overall feeling of ease, of living, and lack of struggle that makes it feel like they're just living and working on Earth. Like, it just seems like they're in a facility on Earth. So they're able to move about the space station without difficulty and without wearing spacesuits. They somehow make their own fuel so they're able to fly around space and land and take off from planets as they please. No one's suffer, suffering from any kind of, um, any obvious psychological issues uh, that you would expect people to be having living on a space station isolated from Earth. So all of these things just make the whole uh, experience seem unreal. And I couldn't really get into it. Uh, plus the audio... And the video quality is a bit on the poor side, and it's dubbed into English, so it just feels so far away. You feel disconnected from this. So what's the verdict on this one? I'm going to say skip it. Okay. Next one. Colossus and the Amazon Queen, 1960.
was that? It's like they go from this, um, the music that would play in a Flintstones episode if they were in Trapped in the Jungle to, um, I don't know, you're in like an Old West saloon and some jokers on the piano plonking away at it. Like, I don't know. what It's like they, they do, they're just like, ah, oh, well, we've got these two clips of unrelated music. Let's just use them for the theme for this because we just need something. So this one was released September 8th, 1960 in Italy and in 1964 in the USA. Running time, 98 minutes in Italy and 84 minutes in the U.S., which kind of speaks to how unimportant scenes are in the movie, right? It kind of tells you right away that there's not much going on in this film. If you can cut out just randomly 14 minutes, like that doesn't seem like a good thing from a 90-minute film. All right. Uh, budget, no idea. Distribution, Galate Film, Glomer Film, Alta Vista. Okay, so what are my thoughts on this? Um, <clears throat> so you have Rod Taylor as the often down-on-his-luck, crafty, scheming guy, and Ed Fury, great name, as the strong man who uses strength to solve all problems. So a couple of thieves want Ed Fury on their ship to protect merchandise. So they hire Rod Taylor to get this done. Um, he tricks Ed Fury and somehow they end up on the ship and then on an island with chests of gold and a buffet table on the beaches. That seems a little suspicious. So the crew gets off the boat and they start gorging on the buffet and they pass out because it's drugged. So the thieves, they split. And then during the night, while the men lay passed out on the beach, a band of warriors collects the men, except for Ed Fury, who was dragged away by some guy he helped earlier or something like that. So Ed is woken up, lying amongst some trees by a talking parrot. And he and the guy who helped him go looking for the rest of the men who were captured on the beach. So they encounter a woman bathing in a stream. And they get captured by a bunch of warrior women and thrown in a cell with the rest of the men. So now we get the women training in like a montage scene. Training in their absolutely slamming outfits. And it's revealed that the women are a matriarchal society with all traditional gender roles reversed, with women occupying military, political, and leadership roles, and men occupying more domestic roles. The women have a sexy group ritual dance that is supposed to arouse the men uh, who are forced to watch. Then two lady political rivals have a jousting match for power. Then many sexy ladies in striped swimsuits each picks out a man for herself to presumably procreate with. If it's 1960, a time before free and plentiful access to pornography, and you're a teenage boy, I could definitely understand why you would go to see this movie. So there are lots of lovely and aggressive warrior ladies in slamming outfits, showing lots of skin. And the premise is that they're looking for men to procreate with. Um, 
if there was supposed to be some kind of social commentary about matriarchy versus patriarchy, it was just lost on me. Let's listen to this confusing clip. This has to be put to death. As an example, harsh as it is, which the whole populace should observe, a mistaken impulse to show mercy at this moment could be worse than dangerous. I might even say disloyal. In my report, I have conscientiously described the facts as they occurred and how the objectionable masculinity of that Greek, having insulted the dignity of only one of us, has committed an unpardonable offense against the community. Don't generalize so many, Ted. Your grudge is only a personal one. It doesn't authorize you to speak This is not a question of personalities. Temper, With temper. us, it's not the person who counts, but all of us together, collectively. These virgin warriors, these valiant girls on whom our country's foundation reposes, absolutely, unquestionably must not be defiled by the impure hand of any man. Unless we give him the opportunity. I suggest you're incorrect. We import merchandise of first quality, heroic, warlike, athletic. And I won't permit you to claim that they should behave like inferior slaves. All men are of the inferior sex. But we women have to accept their cooperation, at least from time to time, to ensure the future of our glorious queendom. That's an irrelevant detail. The law stipulates that only the queen be chaste. I'd like to see you be queen someday. I could reign with much more dignity than you. You'd be too indulgent. By granting one man a pardon, you'd threaten the austerity of our legal code and undermine our discipline. I appeal to the judgment of Her Majesty the Queen and the noble lady senators. And Thyapir is right. I am not satisfied. I request that a vote be taken with a showing of hands. All in favor of the Greek being given his life, raise your hands. After lengthy and attentive study, the council has decided that the Greek shall live. I don't accept your jurisdiction. I demand a trial by combat according to our laws. No, Melita. I'm not angry enough for that. I don't want us to fight. Melita is fully within her rights when she demands a trial by combat. Yeah, so I know it's a bit confusing. It's a long clip. The one woman is super authoritarian and she wants to execute a man who did something. The other woman wants to free him. The authoritarian woman challenges the other to combat. Like, is the film trying to suggest that under matriarchy, women would act as violent and barbaric and authoritarian as men do under patriarchy and would subjugate, then women would subjugate the men as men do to women under patriarchy. Uh, that just, it doesn't seem right. This is followed by a scene of men portrayed as overly effeminate um, while in discussions of a domestic nature. Let's listen to the clip. Neighbor, can you lend me a cup of sugar? No, I'm sorry. I'm fresh out myself. Oh, really? You'd think that one could buy sugar once in a while, wouldn't you? I just can't understand. I never seem to get my wash as dazzling as yours. Tell me, Orestes, what's new with you? Hi Hello. there. Oh, my dear, don't even ask me. I'm slaving day and night. If things go on like this, I'll complain to the union. Oh, Our employers won't right. listen to me. Oh, I'm so thrilled. I never had cake set up so like a fluffy Aren't they dreams? How much baking powder did you use? Yeah, so this seems sort of lazy to me. So it's like the the film just reversed the gender roles without considering that women in charge 
might lead to an entirely different dynamic, like a more socialist society rather than a militaristic authoritarian one. So what's the verdict on this one? I don't know. I guess watch it once because those outfits, the women, again, it's another one where if you're a teenage boy um, during the 1960s, you're like, yeah, I'm definitely going to see this, man. It's totally worth it. I liked the um, Italian actress Dorian Gray. Yeah, really. That was her name. Uh, just like the um, the novel. Uh, she played one of the main characters. She was a total fox. Um, and Wikipedia says that she offed herself by gunshot in 2011. Gruesome. All right, next one up, Hercules and the Captive Women, 1961. So I left all that intro music in because it's um it's pretty good, way better than the last one. All right, so this is um again Hercules and Captive Women, nineteen sixty one, released April nineteenth, nineteen sixty one. Runtime, a hundred and one minutes. That's way too long. No idea about the budget. Distribution, spa, cinema, Italian companies. This is one of those. Um, so this is one of those instances where. You're watching, you find yourself watching a sword and sandal flick and you're not really sure what the title of the film is. You know, is it Hercules and the Conquest of Atlantis? Or is it Hercules and the Captive Women? Or is it Ercole a la Conquista de Atlantide? Well, I guess it's all three, really. Um, and the main character is Hercules. You know that because it's, you know, it's, it's a sword and sandal film. They're all about Hercules. But you're not sure of the names of any other characters. And you're definitely not sure what the central plot of the film is. The audio and video quality is really poor. And it's dubbed into English. So it's really hard to follow what's going on from scene to scene. Now, thank the Flying Spaghetti Monster for Wikipedia, which clarified the plot for me. I don't know where they get it from. So a guy wants to go on a trip 
that could be dangerous, and he wants Hercules to come along. Hercules has had enough adventure in his life and wants to stay with his wife and his son. So the guy kidnaps Hercules and takes him on the adventure, and Hercules' son tags along. Hercules rescues uh, a foxy woman for his son, and he fights some Aryan clones, and Atlantis is destroyed by volcanic eruption or something. Yeah, so what's the verdict on this one? You can definitely skip it. Okay, so next one. The Phantom Planet, 1961. Since the splitting of the atom only a few decades ago, and through his God-given genius of science, man, at last, has succeeded in penetrating further and further into the unknown vastness of space. The moon has become the launching base for advanced exploration. From this pivotal point, astronauts, at the risk of their lives, set out to conquer nature's mysterious forces. Yet many questions remained unanswered. What is his Earth in relation to the inconceivable number of other worlds? Is his speed truly the fastest, his achievements the greatest, or is he a mere unimportant piece of driftwood floating in the vast ocean of the universe? Could there be life similar to our own on other planets? Is it not possible that atmospheric conditions of relative environments control their shapes and forms? If so, would they be giants, or could perhaps the opposite be true? Could their intellect have reached a scientific level far above man's dreams? What then will the future reveal if this story you are about to witness is only the beginning? Yeah, so... I mean, the voiceover kind of tells you everything that's going to happen. Um, okay, so some human spaceships are lost somewhere in the solar system. Another ship is sent out to investigate, and the ship suffers damage from a meteor shower and an accident. And Captain Chapman finds himself on a meteor, like crashed on a meteor, occupied by tiny humanoids exactly like earth humans but smaller like six inches tall chapman is initially regular size but when he breathes the atmosphere the atmosphere and the asteroid he turns small like the natives who are mostly dressed in or scrubs at least the laborers are the natives put captain chapman on trial and convict him but then allow him to remain free and be a citizen. They assign him quarters and try to integrate him into society, which is about 25 or 30 people, it seems like. Yeah, it's really it's not really a society. It's like a small group. So one of the elders explains why their society is the way that it is. Let's listen to the clip. I don't get it. In many ways, you're hundreds of years ahead of our science. Yet you live in such a primitive manner. It may not be as odd as it seems. It's true that our technology may be much further advanced than yours. But then strange thing happened. Well, what was that? We had machines do all our work. 
people on town became completely free of all labor, practically of all responsibilities. Our people became soft and lazy. They did not know how to cope with their free time. They started to fight amongst themselves. That's very interesting. Many people on Earth are beginning to face the same problem. Too much free time, too little work. Mm. Problem not at all unique in the history of the universe. Well, what happened on Raytan? Our forefathers then made a wise decision. They returned to, as you say, our primitive ways. The Raytons again had to toil for their living. They became much stronger, much happier, much more valuable. Yeah, what a load of horseshit. So the machines, uh, they had machines doing all the work and people got lazy uh, with too much free time apparently. And this led to chaos and fighting. So the society decided to return to primitive ways while keeping vital technology. What does that even mean? How can you return to primitive ways while maintaining access to some vital technology? Sounds like elites maintain access to vital technology so that they can rule over the masses. That would be more like it. So later in the film, the captain and another main character have a duel over a woman. They take off their shirts and have a feat of strength contest with the loser is supposed to be crushed by some gravity plate technology. So much for using technology for vital purposes only. Eventually, the Solarites, their fire people, attack the asteroid in their fire ships, but they're destroyed. Jack Chapman and the brunette fall in love, and Chapman has an opportunity to go back home, and he takes it. And when he's rescued, Chapman is unsure of whether what just happened just happened or was just a dream. So a little bit of social commentary in this one, uh, it seems. The handling of refugees slash outsiders. So they really welcome Chapman. I mean, they gave him housing when he showed up. They put him on trial, but then they tried to integrate him in society and they, they gave him some housing. And um, it's a lot better than what happens with people these days. Even to people of your own country don't get that sort of treatment. Um, more social commentary. Machines freed up people's time led to chaos, too much free time, returned to primitive ways, kept vital technology. Um, I, just, I just don't think you can really have that. I don't, I don't think you can have it both ways. I don't think you can have a society uh, that is both a return to primitive ways and maintains some vital technology. Like in the long run, I don't think you could really have that. Also, this feels like, I don't know what, I, I mean, I'd have to think about this a little bit more about what they're trying to say here. But so this is in the early 60s. And I think they see that, you know, technology is starting to make work more productive. Is this about anxiety that at some point in the future, people won't have to work anymore and that they'll get lazy and, and weird and it'll cause social disorder because of all their free time? So I think they would be... um alarmed to realize that here we are 60 years later and that hasn't happened at all in fact people work probably more than they did back then um and there's such a wealth inequality gap that you have very rich elites and you have masses 
who barely scrape a living. So it didn't exactly go that direction. It's not like we're all looking around thinking, what am I going to do with all this free time? Quite the opposite. Work got integrated into real life and uh, into your you know, personal life, and now you don't have much free time. So anyways, it sort of irked me listening to that little spiel within the movie. So what's the verdict on this one? You can skip it. Okay, next one. Ega, 1962 running time 89 minutes budget 15,000 I didn't even know that was possible so distribution fairway international pictures all right so here's a little summary Roxy is driving home through the desert one night and she encounters a giant uh, in quotes right Roxy's father decides to go out to the desert and look for the giant and when he doesn't show up at his rendezvous Roxy and her boyfriend go looking for the father. Roxy and her father have been captured by the giant, and the boyfriend rescues them. The giant pursues them and eventually shows up at their posh home in the suburbs, disrupting a backyard pool party to try to steal Roxy. The sheriff's department shoots the giant. That's it. That's the whole film. So what did I think about this? Uh, it was terrible. It was really bad, and and I really wanted to, uh, I wanted to like this movie before I watched it, but it was just so pointless and boring. Uh, at least the first half was. Uh, here is a scene where Ega has Roxy and her dad in his cave, and Ega is trying to get Roxy to eat a giant bone with meat on it and her dad gestures to Ega to get Roxy something to drink from his smoking cauldron of dry ice. Let's listen to the clip. I can't eat any more of this. Fake it. That's what I've been doing. Now I'm getting sick. Ega. Is that his name? It might be. That's the word he says most of the time. Ega. Oh, Dad, no. That's all I need now is a good drink of milk. Well, I, uh, 
make it last as long as you can. He won't hurt you if you're doing something. A prehistoric gentleman, huh? <laughs> Thank you. Well, here's to you. All right. There are also uh, several scenes where the boyfriend sings. I don't blame you in the least. Oh, it's you, Danny. Nobody lives on the brown Like nobody lives there. Oh, my God. So, Roxy, though, Roxy is a little foxy. Roxy is just Craig's type. Um, yes, this one's bad from start to finish. Like I said, I really wanted it to be good, but um, it's just not. It's just really, just really, really bad. And even in the opening credits, when they're showing uh, like the the title cards, or I guess that's what it is, um, it's kind of like this. Uh, they're showing these skeletons, and um, they have like cloths draped over them. And there's someone right just off camera, like smoking a cigar and blowing cigar smoke in front of the the skeletons. It's supposed to be like creepy or something. It's just so bad. It, I guess you know, fifteen thousand for the budget. That sort of fits. Okay. So verdict for this one, you can skip it, and it pains me to say that because this one, the name is so stupid that you want it to be good. You know, you want this this movie to be good like look at that name man this has got to be it's got to be like funny and it's not though it's really bad you can just skip it okay next one is uh monstrosity 1963 can death be outwitted is the secret of eternal life just around that corner Today, medical science patches up mutilated bodies, transplanting human skin, eyes, limbs, even vital organs. Is the next step the transplantation of the human brain? Many scientists answer yes, but they pause and add a grim warning. For in the ancient folk legends, tales are told of blood-sucking vampires, crawling out of graves to live on the bodies of helpless victims. Is man now doomed to produce a race of ever-living monstrosities, worse than the vampires of legend? Will ruthless men and women of great wealth and power greedily buy or steal the living bodies of the young and beautiful so their brains may live on forever? Such questions may seem fanciful, but at this very moment, scientists are working on the answer to brain transplantation, and human bodies are used. This girl was buried in a nearby cemetery yesterday. Only a few hours ago, her body was stolen. By Dr. Otto Frank, and brought to this hidden laboratory. He has grafted a living animal's brain into this newly dead body. If the experiment works, the next step will be the transplantation of a human brain. The 
brain cells are being reactivated by an atomic fission produced in the cyclotron. So, released September 1963, the TV release title, this one gets confusing, the TV release title is The Atomic Brain. Anyways, the runtime, 64 minutes. Yeah, so I guess this was a TV movie anyway. Um, no idea what the budget was. Distribution, Emerson Film Enterprises. So, let's just, you know, with a little plot summary, um, basically... There's this wealthy woman, and she's old, and she has a scientist somehow living in her house who's going to do a who's has the ability to do brain transplants between old people and young people or whatever, and um, <clears throat> so the woman hires two servants from overseas, one from Austria and one from uh, England. And another one, but I don't even remember. She might be Spanish or something like that. And um, they come to the, the train station, and she sends someone to collect them. They come to her mansion. And then basically the idea is she's going to pick the one that she wants uh, to swap bodies with. And then um, the scientist is going to put the old woman's brain in the young, beautiful woman's body. And that's it. Yeah, so that's the plot. Uh, the problem is that it just isn't very compelling. Like, I like the idea, uh, but the movie just, it just sucks. It isn't filmed well. The script isn't very good. It isn't acted well. It's a bit absurd. Um, let's listen to a clip of what their girl from England and girl from Austria sound like. Are you sure she's not in her room? Yes. Victor left a little while ago. Maybe she went with him. She didn't get out of this prison without permission, that's for sure. Yes. But she would have said goodbye. Why should she? We only met her yesterday. I don't blame her for not wanting to sleep in the basement. Oh. It's funny, though. Mrs. March wouldn't even listen when I asked to be dismissed. That's not what an Austrian girl sounds like. Everybody knows this is what an Austrian girl sounds like. We have got it. Come on. It's ours, Indy. Yours and mine. Yeah, that's it. And that English girl, um, she sounds like she's from the Deep South. Like, her accent was terrible. It didn't sound English. Anyways, this one, uh, it's getting a skip it. That's the verdict. Okay, next one. Son of Hercules in the Land of Darkness, 1964. Uh, 
Right. So this one, March 19th, 1964, Italy, obviously. Runtime, 85 minutes. No idea budget. No idea who distributed it. Had a lot of trouble following along with this one, I got to tell you. Um, I got interrupted several times, so uh, I was getting a bit lost. Um, but it was just hard to follow. Like It was really hard to know what was going on in this movie. Hercules, played by a new guy. He's handsome. Um, he goes to this world, this land, where he has to cross this bridge. And there's lava at the bottom or something. And then uh, he cuts a, rips a tree out of the ground and uses it as a bridge. Goes to this place and does stuff and then comes back. That's that's basically it. I don't really know what was going on. I'm got to be honest here. I really, I was really had no idea what was happening in this one. Really. Oh yeah, Dan Vadis as Hercules. Anyways. He was a handsome fella. Here's what it says in Wikipedia for the plot summary. Hercules Hercules saves a woman named Telka from a lion. I think I remember that. And arrives in triumph in her village. Telka's father, King Tadeo, offers Hercules Telka's hand in marriage if he brings back the tooth of a dragon. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Hercules seeks help from a witch who gives him a spear that will kill the dragon, but wants the same tooth as her reward. As Hercules has promised the tooth to King Tadeo, the witch warns him that the magic of the tooth will only work once. In Hercules' absence, Telka's village has been pillaged with all the survivors save Babar, the comedy relief, are taken as prisoners to the Demulus, a tribe that lives inside a mountain and eats the hearts of their prisoners. Yeah, I buy it. I mean, loosely, that I kind of remember that, but I don't... Yeah, it was very confusing. Anyways, let's just... Uh, you can skip this one. It's not necessary to see it. Thank you for listening today. Check out the show notes for this episode or any episode on my website at ptpod.xyz. The show notes contain the links to all my sources and products that were referenced in the episode. You can write a glowing review of my podcast on iTunes or Google Play. There are handy-dandy links in the menu on my website at ptpod.xyz. And you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash ptpod. The intro music for today's episode was Sweeter Vermouth, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Check out the link in the show notes.